Hi, I'm Stacey Shoemaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I sat down with my good friend, Larry Traxler, who just so happens to be a 2021 Platinum Circle honoree. It's a no-brainer why we want to induct Larry into our Hall of Fame. His career spans decades and countries. He's traveled to 98, in fact. He's worked for some of the greats, Ian Traeger, Jordan Moser, HBA, Hyatt, to name just a few. But it's his work with Hilton that has been most influential to the industry. Since he joined the hotel company in 2009, he's helped double its portfolio to 6,500 hotels and has overseen numerous brand launches and refreshes that have transformed Hilton into a global powerhouse in nearly every segment. That's only one facet of Larry though. Along with his wife, Jerry, he's first and foremost a philanthropist. He's helped to build a library and soon a multi-purpose center in Rwanda He works with Warrior Canine Connection to help train assist dogs for veterans. And of course, he supports a donkey rescue in Virginia. That's all to say that Larry's thoughtful approach to his career and life is what makes him stand out in this industry. It's better to be lucky than good, he says. If you're passionate about everything that you do and invest everything you have, opportunities will land in your lap. Hi, I'm here with Larry. Larry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to catch up with you. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Oh, geez. I grew up in uh, in a, a, a giant town of 5,000 people um, in, a, in, a, in Shelby, Ohio. Um, it, was, uh, it was an interesting upbringing, but incredibly safe. <laughs> nicely but and uh did you always have a love of design or architecture from an early age so you know at, growing up in ohio you don't really have exposure to a lot of um a lot of things like architecture and and art and culture but i i think i found found my way there at an early age um i think uh, in sixth grade i won the uh, governor's award i was able to showcase uh some some art down in Columbus, Ohio. So that was my first exposure to the big city. Um, and I knew I needed to get the heck out of Shelby uh, after that. So, um, well, I didn't necessarily understand what architecture was. My dad was a mason. And uh, so he was always building things. Um, and he's still to this day building things that you can easily buy uh, rather than uh, just buy them. He's, uh, he's always out uh, fabricating things like you know, kayak lifts and for the garage that takes him three days when he could have bought it off Amazon, you know, in 15 minutes. But, uh, so I think my, my love of building things, putting things together, tearing, tearing toys apart and trying to figure out how to put them back together without any missing parts or pieces came about at an early age. Nice. And was your mom artistic in any way or one who entered? Yeah, she was, she's, she's pretty much your, your typical, stay-at-home mom. She was a, uh, she was a, actually, um, an operator for AT&T, uh, for, for a good portion of my, my life. And, uh, so there's not a whole lot of interesting things to talk about when you're uh, just answering phones and redirecting, uh, calls, but, uh, she was a great mom. She was always, uh, you know, a big stable force at, at home. And, uh, she didn't. She didn't crush any of my creative uh, tendencies uh, outside of uh, blasting music in my room at uh, ten o'clock at night. Um, that was that was pretty much the only dampers that she put on my creativity. 
<laughs> and so you went to University of Cincinnati for architecture. How did you end up going there and why? Yeah, that's that's a good story. So I I um I was seriously into art when I was in high school. I uh, thought I was going to go to an art institute uh either in Pittsburgh or uh, RISD or one of those. And um my my art teacher uh senior art teacher um said, "Listen, you're 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 graduating near the top of your class. Um art is really tough. You probably shouldn't just uh, just think about that. So she got me an interview with the uh, the dean of architecture at the University of Cincinnati. I and, and again, I had really no idea what architecture was and uh, whether whether I wanted to do that. Um, but after interviewing with him and him telling me how hard it was and uh, what a what a barrier, uh, you know, that they they invite uh, uh, they get something like three thousand applicants. They invite one hundred and fifty people every year. Twenty to thirty people graduate. It sounded like a really good challenge that I that I wanted to take on, even if I didn't know what being an architect was at the, at the time. So, yeah, I, I sort of landed in in the architecture program uh, accidentally, uh, and uh, you know, before you know it, six years has passed, and and uh, you're graduating, and then you've got to got to go out and make your way as a as an architect. But uh, the beauty of Cincinnati is that they have a co op program. So uh, after your second uh, year of base core curriculum you're working in the field every other every other quarter so you have a good exposure um you know my very first job out of uh, out of the co-op program was with a group that did hospital design i knew immediately that i'd never wanted to do that uh it was incredibly complex and incredibly boring um my second co-op program i was uh, doing residential design that was a lot of fun you know but you can only design so many you know, multi-million dollar residences and, and uh, really get into the details of designing people's sock drawers. Um, you know, that, that sort of turned me off from residential design. Um, so when I graduated, I actually moved to, moved to Chicago the day that Skidmore laid off 300 people uh, in 1990. Um, uh, not a great, not a great day for Chicago architecture, but um I found my way in bartending and uh, eventually found my way at Jordan Moser's and uh, um, embarked on architecture in a, in a unique way uh, through his creative studio. And um, Jordan Moser, so he's your first hospitality job. Um, how did you meet him? It's a little bit like, um, you know, the, 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 the people that catch fish in the story gets embellished every year. I mean, this goes way back. Um, but I, I vaguely remember meeting him at a, at a bar and we were talking about, about what he did and what I was doing. And I was bartending at the time. And, um, he, he mentioned that he had a design studio. Um, so I, I, he, he mentioned that, uh, that he had a design charrette coming up the next day and wondered if I would uh, be interested in showing up and helping him out. It was something for Disney. I don't, don't exactly remember what it was, but, um, I said, sure, I'll show, I'll be there at nine, 9 a.m. And he said, no, no, we don't show up at nine. Uh, that's not a good time for us. We work different hours. Uh, he said, show up at two. So showed up at two. I think we ended up wrapping the first day at about 3 a.m. And uh, that was that was the start of my career at Jordan's. Uh, he, he said, do you want to show up again tomorrow? And so I did. And uh, before I know it, it was seven years later. And uh, we'd done some pretty incredible things together. Amazing. What was one of your 
favorite projects that you worked on with him? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, my first project with him, which was, uh, it was a restaurant in Matsuyama, Japan, uh, called Surf and Turf. And it was, uh, it was about the, uh, the whole narrative, uh, was, um, this sort of collision between cartoon, uh, Japanese anime and, and, um, reality. Um, so the surf and turf characters, uh, became the, the logo and the icon. Um, it was almost like walking through the door into a cartoon. Uh, everything was colorful, um, very, very anime driven. Uh, we got to work with uh, glass blowers and, uh, uh, blacksmiths and sculptors to create everything down to the mugs, uh, the light fixtures. I got to, um, you know, this, this is straight out of college, right. And, and, um, you know, in the middle of a really bad economic environment, but I got to uh, go to Japan uh, for a month and work closely with Japanese artisans, teaching them how to uh, break uh, tile to make mosaics. And, you know, that's very anti-Japanese aesthetic, right? You don't, everything has to be perfect. You don't break things and then put them back together. And I found later that they actually do it really well. They do. Uh, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, uh, scenario that where they uh, they make um, ceramics more beautiful by breaking them and putting them back together. So once I got to know the culture and understand the language enough that uh, when when my translator disappeared at six p.m. every night, uh, we we really got along uh, even better uh, when we didn't speak the same language. We were just acting things out and trying to figure out how to communicate. Working, you know, ridiculous hours until ten, eleven, um, and midnight uh, for a month straight. Came back home uh, for a couple of uh, weeks and then flew back to Japan for the opening. So that started my love affair with restaurant design and. Uh, working with artisans and really getting into the narrative uh, storytelling of of design. Amazing. And from there, you went on to work for some of the industry greats, HBA, Wilson, and then Schrager for a few years. Tell, I don't know if we can go on all of them, but why A, did you want to go to HBA and Wilson and try a larger firm? And B, what did you learn from working at, you know, kind of these industry staples? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, um, I had been at Jordan's for seven years and, you know, working from, uh, pretty much nine in the morning until two in the morning, that's kind of like uh, 35 years anywhere else. So I felt like I was, um, getting burned out and I wanted, I, I definitely developed a, a love for travel and, uh, Asia, um, really, uh, fascinated me at the time. And I got an opportunity to interview with uh, Michael Bedner uh, for an opportunity in Singapore. So I think it was more the the idea of working in Singapore than it was uh, working for HBA or anything else. I had granted, I took the job without going to Singapore. I'd never been there. Um, I knew nothing about the office other than uh, he said that it's a great office around 40 people. They're doing all kinds of really incredible projects. Don't you want to go? And I said, yeah, I do. And uh, I don't know, maybe three weeks later, we had sold our house in Oak Park, Illinois. And uh, we were, Jerry and I, my wife and I were uh, flying to Singapore. And, you know, that was, um, talk about, you know, baptism by fire. Uh, we, we landed in July on Jerry's birthday, uh, 1997. And the Asian financial crisis hit two months later. So we went from having 
all kinds of incredible uh, plum jobs in, in uh, Thailand and Malaysia, amazing resorts, uh, to not uh, being able to contact any of our owners, any of our development partners. We had uh, something like $3 million in uncollectible fees in August. Um, after landing in July. So, oh, um, you know, that, yeah, perfect timing. It's kind of <laughs> like moving to Chicago the day Skidmore laid everybody off. Um, but, you know, I think out of, out of every, every uh, challenge comes opportunity. And uh, certainly uh, we're, we're living through that now. Um, you know, a- after about three months of being in Singapore and started starting to get my sea legs, uh, our managing director uh, resigned. And, um, I ended up inheriting, coming over as a design director, I ended up her- inheriting the managing director uh, position and uh, having to have regular phone calls with uh, Santa Monica and, and uh, uh, working with them on, on expanding our, our platform. Um, you know, when Thailand dried up and Malaysia and, and Indonesia dried up, we had to, had to look to India and China for work. And Nobody was really doing work yet in 1997 in either of those locations. So it wasn't easy. Um, but again, it was a great challenge. Um, you know, the language barriers were high. The, uh, the perpetual contractual negotiations were super high. Um, uh, but it was, it was a fun challenge. And I, I met some great people. Um, but, you know, just in total 100% immersion into hospitality. Uh, during you know one of the one of the greatest financial downturns uh, that Asia's seen. I mean, we I lived through you know the uh, India Pakistan uh, border conflict. I was in Jodhpur the day that uh, that uh, India detonated, or actually uh, Pakistan detonated a, a nuclear uh, warhead right on the border. Um, so that was fun. We heard the the uh, airplanes go screeching across the sky. I was in uh, I was in Indonesia when Suharto was overthrown. Um, saw Mahathir close down the Malaysia stock market, um, and I just left Pakistan when Musharraf had his uh, bloodless coup d'état. So um, it was a dynamic period in in Asia, and a, a really interesting time to be building uh, hotels because they were you know the hotels were very traditional, right? There was the big flagship Hilton, uh, Hilton Marriott's, and there wasn't a lot of diversity in terms of availability. You either, in India, you either stayed at a five-star beautiful property uh, that was, you know, to die for, or you had hepatitis. There was, there was, there was nothing in between, right? There was no, there was no lifestyle. There was no focus service. There's none of this existed yet. So it was really, uh, pioneer territory. The same thing in China, right? There was no no real mechanism for delivering anything other than five star luxury. Uh, even even the Hilton properties are uh, were super high end um, properties at, at that time. So it was a great time to see the market, get to know people, understand how business works over there because it was really the the nascent stages of the hospitality industry and. You know, figuring out how to get design fees paid and money out of India. You know, you if you had an ad services contract in India, at the time it had to be approved by the Federal Reserve Bank of India. Oh, wow. um, imagine what that what fun that is, right? So it was just easier to negotiate. You want us to do another restaurant? That's going to be another forty thousand dollars, and I'll fly over and bring an empty suitcase. 
and uh, Singapore was a it was an open market in terms of it was a free um, uh, free port, so you could bring in up to a hundred thousand dollars without declaring it. And that was you know that's sort of how I cut my teeth in hospitality um, during a really dynamic period of growth in in uh, in Southeast Asia. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I think maybe there's a trend where Larry is something happens <laughs> <Just> <laughs> everywhere you go. Yeah. Um, and so where, after your time in Southeast Asia with HBA, where did you go next and why? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting, I, you know, I think my, my story of my career has been very opportunistic. It's, it's sort of happened um, over, over time. I, I had, uh, while I was in, uh, Singapore. I started working with a uh, the owner of um, uh, a hotel chain there, and his name was Albert Tio, and he he really wanted to do a lifestyle hotel brand in in Asia, but there were none. There was nothing uh, of of that type outside of the Amman resorts in Bali at the time. So he wanted to, you know, he wanted to approach um, lifestyle from a, through the lens of what was happening in the U.S. at the time, and really Ian. Ian Schrager owned that space. Um, he had he had uh, had already established his uh, domain in New York City, um, but Albert was really uh, taken with the uh, with the uh, uh, the Mondrian uh, in LA. So we flew together over and explored that and explored the lifestyle hotel scene in LA. Together, we flew to New York um, and explored uh, the, the various properties there as well. And um, while I was in town, I had a, um, an opportunity to meet Anda, Andre and um, talk to her a little bit about you know, what they did and how they did it. And she mentioned at the time that, that they were hiring. Um, so I extended my, my chat with her into a, an interview and I ended up missing my flight back to Singapore the next day. Uh, because I was uh, thinking and walking the city and wondering whether it was time to, you know, leave Asia. Um, once once that offer came in, I uh, I flew back to Singapore, and I think two months later we were on our way back to New York uh, to um, to start the uh, journey with uh, Ian. Um, and that was that was fantastic. You know, there's there's really no other way to re-enter uh, the U.S. Um, after living you know, that life of travel and, and uh, diversity in, in Asia, uh, then coming back to New York. And um, we had a pretty sweet gig. We, Ian had bought the uh, St. Moritz uh, at the time. And so um, that was my first project. Uh, he put us up there while we looked for a place to live. So we had like a 2,000 square foot apartment uh, with a 500 square foot terrace that overlooks Central Park. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, which makes it really difficult to look at apartments. Yeah, I was going to say, York. what did you yeah. find that was an equivalent of that? <laughs> we didn't find anything until we absolutely had to. So we were doing demolition and the demolition started the basement and moved its way up. When they started knocking walls out on the floor below us, that's when we found an apartment, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, yeah, so we, we ended up moving, moving downtown. We, we found an amazing place down, in, down near um, Battery Park on 21 West that was 1,800 square feet, and it had a terrace that overlooked the Statue of Liberty. So, you know, it hey, wasn't a bad, bad gig. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, end, the St. Moritz ended up um, – um, not coming through to fruition. It's now the Ritz. 
Um, so then I started working on the Morgans uh, soon after that renovation, uh, the Hudson um, projects in London. Uh, but then I inherited the Clift uh, out in San Francisco. And of course, you know, we had just moved back from Singapore, uh, moved to New York, and my very first gig is uh, San Francisco. So I started commuting, um, you know, a 14 month commute uh, between New York and San Francisco. I'd go out 11 days to San Francisco, come back home and see, see Jerry for three days and uh, then fly back. Um, but that was, it was a fantastic um, segue from the work that I was doing in Asia uh, to coming back into the U S and working in the lifestyle space. Um, you know, I got to build my own team. Um, we had, uh, obviously, we were, we were working with Philippe Stark and Bruno uh, Borione uh, at the time. But, um, you know, the actual construction documentation was being done pretty much in the basement of the cliff. I lived in the cliff. Uh, it was closed and under renovation. It was fantastic. Um, you know, I got to work out every detail. I could measure uh, and make sure that every stone joint of the Pietra Serena uh, flooring aligned with the column center lines. I got to work with, uh, with all of the, uh, the manu manufacturers and fabricators of the glass and the, uh, the uh, video um, montages that were in the Redwood room. I got to uh, work with the artists to pull those together. Uh, so it was, it was a fantastic immersion. I had no distractions. It's the one and only time in my life that I've worked on one project. I had one project to focus on and uh i i can still tell you i mean pre-renovation of the cliff i can tell you where every stone joint every why we have a panel uh relief joint there um where every light fixture is smoke detector um it was it was a, it was a unique experience and i got to meet some really great people uh while i was out there and and because it was so distant from new york and ian also had some london um distractions at the time I was really sort of left to my own devices. I would, I would say that Philippe would even admit that I think he came out three times. He came out during the model room review, uh, the kickoff, obviously, the model room review, um, probably about 50% through construction and then for the grand opening. Um, so uh, we took his napkin sketches and, and uh, sort of built the hotel around that. And I think that we really kept a lot of the, the design energy and inspiration that was inherent in those original literally napkin sketches i still have them That's um, so cool. uh, and and we built built a hotel around that and we were left to our left to our own devices for the most part you know um as long as i stayed under the 144 million dollar uh, budget we were we were good so <laughs> did you stay um, under it? it yes we did i think we had a million to spare That's but that was probably blown on the opening party so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that again, again, talk about timing. I mean, you know, we opened that in August 2001 and, and uh, you know, um, September 11th happened not that long after that. And, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of lifestyle hotels and, and uh, living in New York City suddenly lost a lot of its um, uh, glamour and uh, edge and living, living uh, at 21 West. I mean, we were literally a block, block south of the World Trade Center. What did you learn from working on such an iconic property like the Clift and, you know, evolving that idea of lifestyle so early on, you know, because that was one of one of the earliest ones with from I mean, Ian had others, but, you know, it was very still early on in yeah. the evolution of what hotels were going to be um, or were becoming. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and I would say that this has been fairly consistent in, in my career. There's, a, there's always been a strong narrative or, or a storyline uh, behind, the, behind the design. Um, and um, I, would, I would say that um, the, the primary focus is on not losing that original idea, that original narrative or the, the storyline behind uh, the concept uh, and weaving it. Uh, through each and every aspect of the decision-making process that you have along the way. There's a lot of small details uh, that come along you know, through the course of, you know, working on a, on a hotel project, um, everything down to the uniforms and the music and, and uh, really making sure that there's a consistency in the approach and the way that you're looking at those things and not having them be random or arbitrary. Um, because that is what creates memories. It, it is, you know, when it all comes together, uh, it's it's really this sort of beautiful uh, symphony of different pieces. You can play, you can play different pieces of the of the orchestra, um, and if they're not all coming together uh, beautifully, then then it's just a big mess, right? It's a big bunch of noise. So really, I, I think that you know taking uh, taking a storyline, a narrative, and really driving it uh, through every aspect of the the design decision process is uh, really really key. Love it. Um, okay, so you went back to Chicago. You're trying to figure out what you want to do when you grow up. <laughs> what did you decide? <laughs> <laughs> well, I decided I didn't want to be in Chicago. It, it, Chicago had gotten really small. Um, I, you know, I loved it at first, and then it became very provincial. And, and nothing much changes. I mean, I think you could go back today, and a lot of the same restaurants and, and bars are still there. And that's that's part of the beauty of Chicago. But it's also after living in New York and Asia and you know, traveling to Pakistan and Qatar and, and, uh, you know, spending time in Tokyo. Um, it's not, uh, it wasn't for me anymore. So I had an opportunity then to join, um, Trisha and Trisha Wilson and, and her team, uh, out in, uh, LA. Um, so LA sounded a lot more exciting than Chicago at the time. So again, we, we sold our place in Chicago, uh, packed up, and drove out, uh, drove out to California, um, and embarked on on a a really short period of time with uh, with Tricia and Margaret and and the team at Wilson. But I, I think it was a really inspiring time. There was a lot of um, a lot of uh, really exciting projects uh, going on then. And I, you know, again, you know, much like us landing in New York, and then my very first project, real project, being in San Francisco. We drove out to LA, bought a house uh, there, uh, and then I spent probably more time in Singapore and New York uh, in the Wilson offices than I did in LA. Um, you know, so uh, it's it's just sort of random, but yeah, I got lots of uh, frequent flyer miles uh, yes. and bouncing around. And it was a hint um, of what was and, to come. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, they 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 had it was a series of silos at the time. I, I think you know the New York office is doing really great stuff, but they were doing it all on their own. And then you know Johannesburg was doing their stuff, and they were doing it all on their own. And Dallas was doing some great stuff. Um, so one of my one of my roles there was to try to piece them all together um, to make sure that there were similarities in the way that uh, they were addressing documentation, how we did drawings, communication. Um, I brought that perspective from, you know, being immersed in that, in that world at, at HBA and trying to 
tie together the India office, the Singapore office, and the Santa Monica, London, and and um, Atlanta offices at the time. Amazing. And what was it like to work for Trish? Yeah, I would. You know, I really worked with Margaret more uh, more than Trish. Um, Margaret and and uh, the team in Singapore. Um, she's she's an, uh, an incredibly inspirational character, though, and she really. I think that that's where I got my bug for um, investing time and energy into charity. And, um, you know, one of the most valuable lessons that I learned from her, um, following her her efforts to uh, give back to uh, Africa, was that you you really need to invest in bricks and mortars uh, in any country that you're uh, you're trying to uh, create change. And, uh, you know, sending shoes and, and glasses and things like that is, uh, that's all good. Uh, but things can go really wrong if you're not building bricks and mortar and really putting people on the ground, uh, building up a grassroots uh, support mechanism for the, the charity effort that you're trying to uh, further. And, you know, you can't take those away. Those don't disappear as easily as, um, as shoes and other things, uh, books, you know, books are great, but they oftentimes don't end up where they're supposed to. Uh, they're not used uh, for the right purposes. And, um, when you, when you build something tactile and, uh, and permanent, uh, it tends to uh, take on a life of its own through the people that you, uh, create networks with in that country. And is this where you got your, I guess your bug, right? Because you've given so much back to you and your, you and Jerry have, you know, um, help build that multi-purpose center down in Rwanda. Um, you've done mm-hmm. other charitable, um, taking on other charitable causes around uh, the DC area. Do you want to talk a little bit about how this did it start here? And you know, why did you feel? Yeah, yeah. quite, quite honestly, I, I think that my career up until the state was so focused on learning everything that I could about, about hospitality, about, you know, what, how do hotels work? Um, what, what different design styles, what, you know, what is the, how do you build the narrative and um, how do you actually help hotels make money? I think it was so focused on the, the technical aspects of, of what it goes into uh, creating a hotel that I looked past a lot of the cultural uh, implications, a lot of the positive um, socioeconomic impacts of hotels. Uh, although, you know, it, it was easy to see that in India, you know, the positive impact of opening a hotel. And what that did for that community, not only the people that worked there, but the people that worked in and around uh, the hotels. You know, oftentimes we would have to set up educational facilities to, especially when you're in remote locations like the Tar Desert, you know, you're not busing people in from six hours away uh, to work in the hotel. You have to create, uh, you know, a hospitality platform there. So they were uh, actually building uh, schools nearby. And so you see that, that positive influence coming in through hospitality. But it wasn't until I got to know Trish and, and her efforts uh, to give back to uh, the communities in, in Africa that I, I actually saw somebody in the hospitality industry giving back in, in that significant of a fashion and going to uh, hear her speak and, and a couple of fundraisers about that. That's when I, I think my eyes opened. Uh, to that. And, you know, we were still living, um, you know, paycheck to paycheck, but 
there's always a dinner out that you can you can give up and uh, and uh, and networks that you can uh, bridge and and connections that you can make. So I think it started small uh, then, but that's when my eyes opened uh, to the opportunities that that existed there. So moving on to on to your next job, um, was that when you did you leave Wilson to go to Hyatt? Was that when that happened? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a, re- a recurring theme. We just closed on a house on Melrose in West Hollywood, and uh, I got a call from from Hyatt, uh, from Gary Dollins, and I said, "Hey, we'd love to have you come and come and work with us. Uh, love to have you uh, head up um, North American uh, and the Caribbean projects." Um, so yeah, we we closed on our house. I, I actually took the call during the closing, um, and that's when the offer came in. He gave me the the offer details. And I said, okay, um, our, our real estate agent was there at the time. And I said, we're just going to put it back on the market right now. Okay. And that was, that was a, a really good time in the market. So we had, we had five backup offers that were, um, waiting. Uh, so we put it back on the market third, sold it 30 days later for $30,000 more and, uh, and packed everything up and moved, moved back to Chicago again. Jerry is a saint. <laughs> there's a lot of blind uh blind faith and trust in in my decision making process (laughs) so why what um, was the enticing what enticed you to go listen when i when i lived in asia all of the greatest properties were were hyatts you know the park hyatts the the grand hyatts uh they were the most inspirational, the most, um, you know, the less, uh, the least cookie cutter, the, the least uh, North American centric in terms of their design inspiration. Their food and beverage program was amazing. Um, it, it was really exciting. And, you know, the fact that they, uh, they owned a good proportion of their properties in North America, and I was going to be heading that up, um, meant that I could could make a pretty big uh, impact uh, in those properties. So, you know, if the GM, um, if if the Pritzkers own the place and the GM reports to Tom and Nick and um, I'm the design guy who's supporting uh, their vision, they have to kind of listen to you. you. Can't They can't create their own, their own little fiefdoms. They can't have secret projects on their own like most GMs do. And anybody who knows a GM knows that they like to um, build the hotel around their vision. Um, so I knew that I could actually create a big impact there and, you know, it seemed like a good way of stepping outside of, um, the world of, of design again. Um, you know, Ian, Ian's, Ian's studio was unique. It was something between being an operator and a brand. It was, it was really this, this sort of collaborative, uh, thought, thought school right there really, there really it wasn't like we owned hotels even though we did it was, um they you know, would make decisions based on uh design as opposed to revenue um he still made money but he would he would make he would make decisions that were not necessarily focused on growth and number of hotel rooms and um you know how do we how do we build our pipeline i thought hyatt would be a good way of getting back into that world uh, without without selling my soul and giving up on design, um, so you know, I I I really think that my time at Hyatt, where I you know I built a great great team, we were managing 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in CapEx um, um, doing renovations in all of the what, 40 some odd properties that they owned in North America, building uh, new properties and, and launching the Ondas brand. It was really a, a time of, of growth and bringing that, that sort of Asian centric um, elevated design uh, methodology back to the U.S. and really um, taking the cookie cutter revenue-driven decision-making process um, and creating more experiences uh, and being more about design. What was it like creating the Andaz brand? That's, that's, it was awesome. I, there's nothing like uh, creating a, a brand. Um, you know, the, it, the first, the first time of doing anything is difficult, right? I mean, riding a bike for the first time, you're going to skin your knees. Um, this was a, it was an interesting process because Hyatt hadn't really created any brands. If you think about at the time, uh, was Hyatt, there was Grand Hyatt and Park Hyatt. Um, the Grand Hyatt was at Grand, um, you know, it was, it was largely driven around being its, in its proximity to Grand Central. Uh, the Park Hyatt was driven largely by its location and proximity to the park uh, in Chicago. So they, they were sort of happy happy accidents um but they weren't they weren't really focused uh efforts to create a brand andaz was really a, uh it was burn Kringle's um notion that we have to blow the cobwebs off of the hospitality industry in north america take the best pieces and parts of lifestyle hotels at the time which were you know purely a lot of them were more about style than they were substance or guest experience if you weren't cool and if you weren't a movie star, you oftentimes got shunned at those, at those lifestyle properties. So how do you take the best of, you know, really design-driven, full-service brand, marry it with a lifestyle brand and create this, you know, design, um, design-led uh, concept that is about culture and food and beverage and, and uh, really sort of breaking the mold of what hospitality was in North America and re-envision it, you know, for what it is today. So getting rid of the reception desk, uh, getting rid of, um, you know, a lot of the sort of notions of what you had to have in a hotel. Um, and then really trying to create something that was um, more, more guest centric than it was design centric in terms of the lifestyle space, because that didn't exist at the time. And, I mean, was this the first time, I mean, I know you worked on the Clift, obviously, and you worked on other hotels um, with Wilson and HBA was, but this was your, was this your first time really coming up with a brand from beginning to end? Yeah. 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 Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had, we had the notion of the brand and then we had um, Pritzker money uh, behind uh, the launch of the brand, which is uh, really important because you can craft it in the, in the vision that you, uh, that, you know, where all of the time and energy and thought process was behind it. You didn't rely on somebody else to deliver that. Um, and then we had another, another unique project that came along, which was um, other people's money, and that was Ondas Wall Street. So we were working on the launch of the brand as well as Ondas Wall Street and Ondas Fifth at the same time. So Tony Chi on, on Fifth and Rockwell Group on, on Ondas Wall. Um, so other people's money. Pritzker money, um, you know, million a key, 400,000 a key. Uh, there's two dramatically different worlds. And it was fun trying to figure out the path of the brand 
between those two really wide guardrails, right? And um, I think that, you know, the, the storyline, the ethos of the brand really came together because we had those two polar opposites, right? We had, Hondas uh, would be very much a luxury brand today uh, and sit in a, in a very high, um, high level uh, um, space amongst the luxury brands if it wasn't for Wall Street being developed uh, at the same time. And I think that it landed in a happy medium that's given it some legs and ability to expand, um, which then, of course, further informed my, uh, my efforts when I came over to Hilton uh, and looking at uh, the Canopy brand and looking at accessible lifestyle. How do you create even more uh, inclusivity and, and expansion possibilities, but still, still uh, really try to deliver something that's fun and inspired and uh, design-led. So why did you make the jump to Hilton? And did you buy another house in Chicago before you moved to <laughs> yes, East Coast? Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> Just checking. Uh, yes, we, we, had a, we, had a, we had a beautiful loft overlooking the South Loop, 2,000-square-foot uh, terrace. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. Um, but I think, you know, I, listen, I, I loved working with Nick and Tom and, and uh, Dollins and the team at Hyatt, uh, I, I knew every GM and every one of our properties. They embraced you like a, a family member every time you arrived at a hotel. Uh, there's a really great culture there. But um, ultimately, that, you know, North America and the Caribbean got too small for me. Um, I, I really love international work and I get inspired by international travel and just being in Denver or, you know, San Antonio and um, you know, every so often getting out to Trinidad, you know, that was the big fling, uh, in terms of projects. Um, it was, it was too confining. And I got a call from a former, uh, Hyatt, uh, colleague who had, um, gone over and uh, joined Chris and Seta, uh, on running the development, uh, for Hilton at the time. And I had, I knew very little about Hilton other than what I knew, um, of, of them in Asia, uh, pack and, you know, the, the Conrad in Tokyo is a stunning property. And, um, but most of the Hiltons were pretty, you know, vanilla, I would say, and not memorable. I didn't have a whole lot of experience. I never worked on one with HBA or Wilson. Um, but, um, you know, Steve Goldman gave me a call, uh, asked me to fly, fly out to LA and I met Chris, Chris Lucetta and, Matt Richardson and, and him, uh, we, we talked about, um, you know, the Blackstone buyout, um, the merger between international and domestic, you know, all the, the potentials that, that existed there. And it sounded really exciting. Um, I think that I was selfishly looking um, more towards international development than growth. And so that seemed really appealing to me. But keep in mind, this was 2000, this is 2008, uh, during the height of the, the financial crisis. I had a really comfortable job. Um, I, I was flying with Tom and, and Nick to uh, look at properties on their private jet and had, had, had an incredible amount of job security there. And we knew Chicago well, we had friends. Uh, so this was a big leap of faith. But after speaking to Chris and hearing his vision uh, for what he, what he foresaw as the future of Hilton and the potential that was untapped, um, I, I had to, I had to take, take that leap of faith and, um, you know, I'm always up for a, for a challenge. Um, I don't think that I had any idea what I was getting into at the time. I mean, you know, 
Hyatt, Hyatt was 415 hotels at the time. Um, I think when I joined uh, Hilton, it was 3,600 hotels. Um, you know, we had 590,000 rooms or something like that at the time. So I knew that it was going to be, a, uh, I was biting off a big chunk. And I also knew, you know, from speaking to Chris, that the, there were a lot of things to fix. Um, you know, the UK, obviously there are different companies, right? So the UK was going off in its own path. Asia was doing its own thing. India was off the charts. They weren't talking to anybody doing their own thing. Um, you know, and so there was going to be a lot of, you know, breaking eggs um, to make this omelet uh, before we would ever get to start making the omelet. Right? We would just be breaking eggs for years. And um, it sounded, it sounded really enticing. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like taking the Andas brand and helping give birth to that. But, taking uh, eight brands at the time and giving them shape and form and, and a voice uh, that, that made more sense. So it sounded really enticing. And um, yeah, if I had really thought about it, it, much like Singapore, I probably would have just stayed in my comfort zone. And, um, but, you know, Chris is a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you even begin? Like, what was your step one? Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, Look at us. So we were 3,600 hotels back then. Uh, today we're at 6,500 hotels. So we've nearly nearly doubled uh, the the uh, open and trading. Our pipeline is um, our pipeline at the time was 900 hotels or something like that globally. Uh, we're you know 2,600 plus right now. We were eight brands then. We're 18 now. Um, and and thoughtful brands that are all developed internally with a very clear swim lane and ethos that is focused, you know, on creating space uh, between its uh, two, two brands on either side of it. Um, I, I think that what we did first was figure out who we had um, on the team that, that was valuable and um, who we, uh, who we needed to, to jettison um, and uh, how we started rebuilding. So I, I flew around the world. I, I started meeting. Um, at that time, we only had four offices uh, where we had uh, architecture and design studios, and we were developing, um, I would say, 80% of our pipeline growth was in North America, 20% in the rest of the world. So just imagine the disparity there. I mean, 80% in North America meant it was Hampton, uh, HGI uh, at the time. Um, so the potential was massive, but we had to get the machine right. Um, we had to we had to build the team first. So we we pretty much let everybody go. Um, we rebuilt from the ground up, and um, you know we now sit at um, eleven offices around the world, uh, with um, close to two hundred and sixty people, architects and interior designers, and in the offices three in North America, uh, London, Dubai, Delhi, Shanghai, Singapore, Cape Town, Johannesburg. Um, a really dynamic group of people, you know, when I, when I first came in, we had, you know, we had some people that worked their way up through housekeeping into the design world. Um, that's, we need designers, uh, you know, who are, who are leading professionals, uh, and to, uh, deliver new hotels. So we, we fixed that. We rebuilt, you know, that we had, I think seven different design and construction standards around the world and they were all different. And then we had that multiply that by eight because we had eight brands. So we had 56 different design standards. If you were an owner 
when trying to build an HGI in, in the US and then you wanted to build one in Mexico, you had a different set of rules, right? And uh, it was tough. I mean, there's a huge, huge barrier to entry. So we broke everything. We broke the brand, the design and construction standards, the brand standards. We, we never had a design narrative um, when I joined uh, Hilton. You know, nothing that communicated to an owner uh, or a designer what the brand was about. You know, what is the brand ethos? What, what is the customer journey? What, uh, what are the key brand pillars? And um, how, how, how do, what stays consistent in um, in that brand ethos and, and that brand story uh, in the U.S. and how does it how does it vary when you pick it up and plug it into Japan, right? Um, so we have we have all those tools now, and that's why you know it's a lot easier to build and grow. And, and in spite of all the challenges of uh, 2020, we still grew at a rate of five over five percent and opened over 400 hotels. So that's that's a testament to the process, right? The process is is a really well oiled machine. I have a great team uh, that uh, supports me around the world. I mean, most of my people in senior leadership positions have been with me for ten years. I've been with the company for twelve. Um, I think yeah, there's a couple that are uh, eleven and twelve as well. So you know, Vito and uh, Leo and and Chris Webb um, have been with me uh, for almost the whole duration. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great journey and, and the creation, the dynamic creation of new brands and really thoughtful creation of new brands where we have white space, uh, is part of that fun, uh, because it really helps us. A, a lot of people uh, think that there's brand proliferation and there's too many brands, but really what's happening <clears throat> is we're able to keep our, our core hard brands more focused and true to their vision. And the things that fall along the fringe, they go into the collection brands or they go into another brand that, that we've created. So there's, a, there's more consistency and more clarity uh, behind uh, the core brands as a result of creating these other, other brands that were all created because there was a development um, uh, ask for them. Uh, our developers are saying, we really need this in this market. And we say, we're not going to bend our brands to meet that, but we can create a new brand that actually answers that customer segment and that development uh, growth uh, mechanism. So, yeah, it's um, it was fun. Still is fun. Still is fun. <laughs> so how many projects are you currently working on, give or take? Give or take. Um, so it's down a little bit uh, since um, the end of 2019. I think we were... Um, I, I, I'd say we're right at about 2,600 hotels, about 400,000 rooms in 100 countries. Sure. We're busy. So Conrad Waldorf, I know that's been a focus of yours um, as of late. How are you evolving them and what luxury means today? I mean, I know even before COVID, how are you looking yeah. at that? What lens were you looking through? So we've been, we were really lucky. In 2019, we did a deep dive uh, with Red Scout on on brand positioning and really doing uh, a ton of consumer insight across uh, 20, um, 20 different countries, um, hearing hearing uh, guests uh, feedback on what it is um, to stay in a Conrad property, what you love about it, what you would love to see. Uh, we did this for all 18 of our brands, or at the time, 16 of our brands. Um, so we had all of that information really just sort of sitting uh, there at the end of 2019. And then, you know, we had a bit of a, 
a bit of a uh, a pause at the beginning of of 2020, uh, where we were able to take all of that that information and really sort of distill it down into a post positioning uh, effort and and really give voice to each of the each of the verticals that sit within the brand. So what is the service uh, ethos? What is the design ethos? What is the, um, what is the operational ethos? And um, give clarity around those. So um, I think that what we found is that luxury is probably changing faster than any other, any, any other segment. Um, that a lot of our hotel segments are blurring into, um, into more of a jumble of lifestyle. You know, we have lifestyle Hamptons, right? Uh, OTO built a beautiful Hampton in Santa Monica that could be a, a tempo, right? If it, if it wasn't for the hotel rooms, which were prototypical uh, Hamptons. So lifestyle is invading all aspects of the, of the brand segments, even luxury, right? Um, so we have to really um, understand what the luxury guest is looking for. They're looking for something that's more casual, more relaxed more approachable, but at the same time, not um, deviating into that lifestyle space. And so there's a very different um, set of feedback that we've, we've achieved um, through our consumer insight from Waldorf and Conrad guests. They're very, very different. They're not, you know, you can't just lump luxury into one bucket and say that this is what they're looking for. A Waldorf guest is very much looking for partnerships with similar uh, luxury brands and Hence, our, our uh, work in, into uh, creating uh, the drive experiences with Maserati and, and Lamborghini and, and others. And uh, Conrad is very much about culture, cultural exploration, food and beverage, um, music, art. Uh, and so we're really starting to hone down into what the consumer is telling us about why they stay in Walter and really focusing our design efforts on, on making sure that we're delivering there. And... Um, I think the you know the the outcome uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lot more work uh, to really um, sort of layer that onto the whole uh, backbone of the operational efficiency the uh, the design uh, layout you know relating to sense of place but then layering on that that additional uh, brand positioning piece is really making the properties that we're opening now so much richer in terms of experience um, uh, more layered and complex in terms of the art program, the food and beverage program, really thinking about what is relevant for that market uh, where we're opening. It's not just a grill, right? You don't just have a grill in, in Bangkok. But what's happening at the top of the restaurant or top of the hotel that really drives locals as well as as um, as international travelers. So it's it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. I would say luxuries morphing dramatically, uh, lifestyles. Um, we're we're trying to keep. Uh, you know, we have three lifestyle brands. We used to have one. Um, uh, so micro, um, tempo, um, or motto, motto in the micro space, uh, tempo and canopy. So that's, that's growing. Uh, we opened close to 20 canopies last year. Um, haven't gotten to see many of them, but you know, Must um, be you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It's it, you know, everything's moving so quickly, and and obviously now we have this whole layer of COVID response, right? So, you know, how how do we layer in this the notion of cultural exchange, uh, uh, authenticity, diversity, empathy? You know, how does that um, find its way uh, into the design of of our hotels? And certainly, 
um, how do we how do we weave it into the service culture? I think that's even more important. And I I've probably spent more time uh, in over the course of 2020 talking to uh, doctors that um, and psychologists trying to understand the, the what people are going through mentally, both on my team and and our guests, but also um, you know physicists and and uh, scientists who, who are um, understanding the pathogen travel, you know, how we filter it out of the air. Um, you know, so design almost got put on hold for three or four months while we tried to understand everything else that was going on so that we made sure that what we were doing in design was relevant and responsive to our team member safety, our guest safety, uh, that we weren't adding on additional costs to our owners that, um, might have come in through, you know, like we had green washing before. Now we right. have COVID washing, right? We were being, I was getting calls and emails daily on for antimicrobial fabrics, right? Like, doesn't matter if it's a virus, if your fabric is antimicrobial, does it? So <laughs> um, it, it's, it's um, I, I, I think does hospitality in general is going to go through a major uh, transition. There's going to be a lot of things that remain the same, but I think that some of the core things that we've been exploring in the past, like wellness, uh, biophilia, uh, the creation of uh, connection to uh, locale, uh, blurring of lines between indoors and outdoors, uh, those are going to uh, be even more prominent uh, as we come out of this and start our path towards recovery. You've worked with so many amazing designers across, you know, throughout your career. What, what do you look for in a collaborator and how, you know, how do you pick someone to take on a project? So, you know, listen, we love to work with designers who are creative and dynamic thought leaders, but you know, that's not the be all and end all. Um, it's absolutely imperative that they understand our business and our brands and, and where we sit in our, in our, um, uh, in our field in terms of competition um, because it's, it's really difficult to, uh, embark on a two to you know five year journey with somebody that is learning uh, those those key things along the way. Um, I, I would say that we tend to go back to design studios that uh, that do their homework, that come uh, come prepared and and understand what the dynamics of of building in in uh, Myanmar uh, might mean uh, that uh, have a sense of, of what the cultural uh, ramifications are of building in that location. Um, they show flexibility in their design approach. It isn't designed for design's sake. Um, and uh, the, the unique value aspects of each hotel are more important than their signature design style. I think that, you know, sometimes we do, we do want to go to star architects or star designers who have a very identifiable style. But I would say for the most part, we'd rather work with somebody who has a diversity in different um, design languages and can morph their uh, their discipline and their their inspiration into a unique um, product for for each and every project. Because guests don't want to see the, the same thing when they're traveling to New York and then to Tokyo, right? They want to see something different. They want to see. They want to explore the culture. They want to. Um, they want to be inspired. Uh, they want to explore. Um, and people aren't just traveling because of business, right? They're, they're embracing the culture uh, as well. So the hotel should exude that. They should embody that. Um, so people that, um, that show flexibility in their design style, that listen, 
uh, and that really try to answer the business aspects as well as creating a beautiful hotel. Those are the ones that we enjoy working with because, as you know, um, you do the math, 260 architects and interior designers and uh, 2,600 hotels. The, um, we're, we're each handling a big load of uh, projects and they're complex. So we need to rely on those design partners to, uh, to really deliver on, on their end of the bargain. Right. Is there one, okay, let's do a little lightning round. Is there one property that you, that recently opened or was renovated that you are super excited about? Yes. Yeah. I, I can't wait to go see the Waldorf and the Maldives. Uh, it is, it's, it's truly an amazing uh, property. I got to uh, visit there many times during construction um, you know, when we had to take a, a barge off of the, off of the island, uh, at the end of every day with the workers, uh, to go stay in another hotel, um, but it's open and trading now. Um, so I'd love to see that, uh, property, um, as soon as possible. The Brand. private island just opened too. Oh, well, I'm in. Just let me know. <laughs> Brand that you, I mean, it's crazy that you've done what, what did you say? 10 brands in the past 11 years, give or take. Yeah. I yep. mean, that process is, I mean, it, it takes time. There's thought behind it. I mean, like, Absolutely. I don't know how, yeah, yeah, I don't know how you did your day job while doing, you know, launching all these brands, but is there one that you are most proud of? Yeah. You know, Canopy took the longest. I would say that, you know, we worked on that for five years. Um, I'm, I'm really happy and proud with where that's, that brand is going. And um, I think it has got incredible momentum, both domestically and internationally. And we're going to be opening a few properties in Paris uh, very soon that are just going to shock the world. It's they're really cool. Um, I, I, I would say, yeah, it's it's probably the Canopy brand. So in 2019, how many miles did you fly? Do you think? I, I would say that if I consolidated American United, Emirates. Cafe and Singapore Air. I was I was about three hundred thousand. Okay, how many miles have you flown in twenty? Did you fly in the last year? <laughs> I flew to Cancun uh, for HD Summit, uh-huh. and I flew to South Africa, so about two thousand miles. Yeah, what do you miss most about traveling? Oh god, the culture, food, you know, interaction with people. I, you know, it's so funny. I. I, I don't go to the grocery store very often. Jerry handles most of those duties, but when I do go out, I'm just, I'm fascinated by people and how goofy they are and how, you know, how clumsy they are in terms of social etiquette. And it's, it's going to be a lot of fun seeing people come back together again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be really clumsy. <laughs> um, what is your favorite pastime to keep yourself sane these past few months? Are here. Yeah. Hmm. I haven't had a whole lot of free time. It's, you know, that's part of the, part of the, uh, the, the bane of, of working from home is that you tend to start answering calls and emails at 7am with China and, and, uh, Singapore and, uh, finish at eight o'clock with Sydney, 8pm with Sydney. And, and, um, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of free time. We have filled it with, uh, uh our, we're doing a lot more work with Warrior Canine uh, Connection right now. Um, our our uh, favorite charity because we get to uh, we get to uh, 
um, puppy parent uh, dogs in training. So we have uh, we've had a six month old yellow lab for a couple of months. Uh, we had um, Reston, who's a year and a half, uh, just leave uh, last week. So we're training uh, training um, assist dogs uh, for the uh, returning veterans. Um, and uh, the donkeys, the donkeys have been incredibly safe. Uh, as you know, the farm is um, out in the middle of nowhere, fresh air. Um, the donkeys don't have COVID. Uh, they don't mind us. They, they don't, they're, they're wearing fly masks sometimes and uh, we're not, we don't have to wear masks around them. So that's been, that's been a good pastime. And for those that are listening, it's a rescue farm for donkeys, right? And small horses. Yeah. Yeah. Little, little long ears, uh, donkey rescue. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. You've worked for, well, you are working for Christmas at a uh, Pritzker's Ian Traeger, Trish Wilson, Michael Bedner, some heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. What, what has been a takeaway from, like, what did you learn from Ian versus Chris versus the Pritzkers? So Ian, Ian's visionary and he has to be very much a part of, of the details and the delivery. Um, but his, uh, his, you have to get to know his communication style and understand what he's asking for because um, it isn't immediately evident. Tom and Nick Pritzker are very, um, very straight and to the point. They know exactly what they want, and then they go away and let you do, uh, do your job. Um, Michael, I, was, I would say that with Michael and Trish, I was largely operating outside of their sphere of influence. So um, I was working with the legacy of, of them, which is which is huge in the industry. Um, uh, so, you know, on one hand, you're, you're trying to deliver to the, to the expectation that, that has come upon the legacy, of which they built, they were built, um, uh, their, their names were built. Um, Chris, Chris is an amazing, I, I would say that um, my biggest takeaway with uh, working with Chris is that he is so laser focused on culture and making sure that uh, there is a, um, uh, a company-wide embrace of thought, diversity, um, empathy, uh, everything that he does uh, speaks to that. And he is all about building a team from day one when I met him in LA uh, until now. He talks about team building and we don't do this unless the team uh, can deliver. And, and he's right. You know, It doesn't matter how nice a, a hotel is designed. If the people that are welcoming guests into that hotel, if they're not um, you know, making the meals and, and delivering service. If they if they don't have that same sense of cultural uh, support and delivery of the light and warmth of hospitality, then it all falls apart, right? So um, that that's been my uh, biggest takeaway with working with him. He is so focused on building the right culture, and uh, there's been nobody uh, that I've felt more comfort in listening speak over the course of 2020 than Chris. He's been, you know, just a steady hand on the wheel, hugely optimistic every time, even in the depths of, you know, when we were closing more hotels than, uh, than, than we had open, uh, he was optimistic and, and, uh, and very supportive of us and, uh, really, really looking out for, uh, the well-being of everybody that was, you know, delivering hotels and, and, uh, delivering hospitality. I, I haven't seen that anywhere else. Uh, that I've been. What's your outlook for 21 and beyond? Is it, what do you, that's huge. Yeah. I think, I think we're hugely optimistic about the second half of 2021. I think once we get the vaccine 
uh, rollout in place, there's going to be an incredible pent up. I mean, you know this, right? how how anxious are you to travel, right? And <laughs> this is some, there's some survey out that something like eighty percent of Americans plan on traveling in 2021. Um, I, I can't wait to get on an Amtrak train. I mean, I, I've never said that before, right? I just want to get up to New York and I want to, I want to, I want to explore. I want, and so I think that it's going to be huge. I think we're going to get smacked with how busy uh, things are. And I think the opportunities are great for 2021. We're going to be incredibly busy by the end of the year and, and uh, be looking back and saying, you know, I, I, Glad, glad that I got caught up on my sleep in 2020. What was your most challenging project and why? I think two different sides of that coin. Um, probably the most challenging project that we've ever embarked on would be the Waldorf in, in New York. Um, I think we started the master planning on that property back in 2014. Uh, we did model rooms with Alex um, in Chimpala Mode in, in uh, Oh God, what was that? 2017, 2018. Uh, we oh, sold the property <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, we're still, we're still building out the, the vision. It's going to be amazing. It'll be the, the best luxury property in New York with, you know, the average uh, room size is over well over 600 square feet. The public areas, uh, the, the landmark spaces are going to be uh, brought back to their original grandeur um, that, that hotel needed this and needed a complete shutdown and um and really the investment of the um our, our chinese investors nobody nobody has pockets um that deep um it is it's been a huge undertaking on their part but they are remaining true uh to their original vision and it's going to be an amazing property and so i would say the longest and the most difficult is that what how has did your leadership or your your um your take on being a leader change in 2020? Yeah. Um, I focus a lot less on design um, and particular projects and more on, on the mindset of our team. You know, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, what, what, what challenges are you facing? Is there anything that we can do to help uh, with that? I've asked um, way more how I can help, how I can, uh, uh, break down barriers, how I can create connections. Um, I, I probably looked at less drawings in 2020 than ever um, and spent more time on people and, and really thinking about how we uh, keep people's um, head in the game, how we uh, help um, keep them inspired and, uh, and happy in, in spite of uh, the challenges how we um, took away a lot of the concern that might be out there in terms of, you know, not working in a, in an office and not being able to run into people uh, in the elevator at the water cooler uh, where you have casual social action. Um, It's tough to convey a lot of these things, you know, you call a formal meeting and everybody's nervous, right? Um, But if you just run into them in the elevator and you say, everything, how's everything going? It's, it's way different. So I would say that, um, Really keeping people's eyes focused ahead uh, and and staying optimistic um, is is what I did a lot more of in 2020, and I hope that uh, that that doesn't necessarily change. But I hope that um, that culture uh, permeates and cascades downward amongst everybody uh, on the team, and that we're a lot more empathetic and a lot more um, 
collaborative as a team um, moving forward. I have already, I've already seen it. Um, everybody is a lot friendlier, even though, I mean, the thing that I keep hearing is that I, I can't wait to get together with my colleagues again. I can't wait to get together and have a beer. Uh, but they're already a lot friendlier and closer and they know more about their home lives and their dogs. And we know, you know, we know way more than we need to know about people's dogs um, and cats. We've seen them on the, on the zoom calls. Um, but that, that's a piece of their personal life. Right. Okay. And um, I think that we're going to be, we're going to come out of this and um, in the recovery mode in a lot more of a positive fashion uh, after that. And I would say that, you know, that, that goes not only to our team, our immediate team, but also to our owners. You know, we're listening to them. What are their challenges? You know, how do you how do you serve breakfast in a COVID uh, environment? Uh, and that's changed. That's changed seven times since uh, March last year. Um, right. So we have to continually evolve and keep and, and stay nimble and agile and and keep thinking forward about how we how we do things as as things start reopening. And before we wrap, I want to get back to. Um you know, your, your giving nature and how much you've done um, and talk about how you and your wife, Jerry built the library in, in Rwanda. And now you're also building a multi-purpose center, right. For the same community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about that and what that's meant and where you are. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, we went to, um, we went to Trek the gorillas in I think 2009, 2009, 2010. And, um, uh, you know, where the gorillas are situated in Rwanda is a very remote location, about three hour drive outside of Kigali, the main, um, uh, capital city. Um, so we stayed at this little eco lodge at the top of a volcano. And, um, there was a, a local school there called Muiko. And we were told that, um, there were, you know, that's a small village of 2000 people, um, if you want to bring something uh, for the school, bring pens, uh, paper, um, English books, because they're trying to learn English. Um, and we're thinking, you know, a village of 2,000, how many kids can there be? There's probably maybe 50, I don't know, 100. Um, so we showed up, we had, we packed a big, uh, a big duffel bag, a big hockey duffel bag full of uh, books and stuff, towed it along and uh, went down to the school one day. Um, between treks and uh, 700 students came running out because they heard um, there were masunzas there, uh, white people. Um, so they all ran out and um, uh, we, we ended up hanging out with them for the afternoon, chatting with the teachers who really wanted to um, speak to us because they were learning English. Uh, their, their president, Kagame, at the time had, had mandated that the Belgians and the French were complicit in the genocide. And therefore, they no longer wanted to teach in French. Uh, so they're teaching in Kerouandan or English. But they didn't bother to teach the teachers English before mandating this. So a lot of, a lot of the classrooms were actually dark and quiet because the teachers were learning English while the students sat and behaved themselves uh, quietly in a hot brick classroom. Um, so after seeing this and spending a bunch of time with the, the kids, we came back and said, we have to do something didn't know what that meant, um, but at first we thought it was sending books over. So we started raising money, um, started um, doing some research, uh, created some uh, connections with uh, local 501c3s, and um, ended up building uh, building an art program, uh, a book program, getting to know the school better. We 
uh, created connections with some teachers in Uganda who came down and helped, uh, helped us do a, a mural uh, that would uh, talk about the future and, and what their hopes were for the, the children. Um, we ended up having them do an art program and we brought some of the art back and sold it uh, to raise money. Um, and we, we ended up um, raising enough money to build a, a small uh, library, which completely changed the, the dynamic of this little village at the top of a volcano. It's an, literally an hour walk downhill to get to the nearest um, post office or book, you know, book shop or anything like that. So having this uh, at their disposal at the top of the hill changed their lives. It became the cultural hub of the village. Um, uh, we, we've shipped uh, laptops over um, iPads. Uh, there's 5,000 books there. Uh, it was being used as a daycare center, a, a woman's um, female cooperative where they were sewing uh, pouches and, and pillowcases and things like that and making money. So now we, you know, the, the, the purpose of the library is almost getting squashed by all of the other cultural things that are happening in it. Uh, so we have to build the cultural center to, uh, to help create some space around the library. So, yeah, we're raising money for that. And, um, you know, we've had some really great sponsors. The Dobins uh, have been fantastic. And, and Dan Ryan and, and uh, Jesse Kalisher was a huge uh, supporter as well. So um, the goal is to call it the Kalisher Center, the Kalisher Multipurpose Center. Uh, the, the ground is cleared. Um, we have, I think, foundation is actually poured now. And we just have to raise, uh, raise the last uh, remaining funds to uh, build it. But we've We've been able to create some amazing partnerships. Um, we have architects who are doing work pro bono. Uh, the uh, the contractors uh, in Africa Energy are donating a huge amount of uh, money. Um, in our last um, uh, ribbon cutting for the library, over 500 um, people came, including the mayor of Kigali. Oh. Um, and so it was a, it was a big deal. Um, we're, we're, it's kind of fun being a celebrity in um, Moiko. <laughs> the village of 2000 it reminds me a lot of where i grew up all right well you know i can talk to you forever but i feel like we should wrap up and we always end the pod with the title of the podcast so what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned mm. I, yeah i i would say my greatest and you've you've heard this come out of, uh, in a few different um stories uh, along along this journey i would say that's it's, it's better to be lucky than good. Um, I would say that, you know, whichever of those categories that you happen to land in, um, you have to show up fully committed, um, ready to put in the hours, work hard, be kind, um, be passionate about everything that you do. And um, if you invest everything that you have, um, opportunities actually um, land in your lap. I, I think that it, I'm a huge believer in that. I, I don't think that I had any idea that my journey was going to take me from Chicago to Singapore to, to New York, to LA, to, you know, uh, all the places in between. Um, but I, I, I threw everything that I had into uh, every step along the way. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no, there's no other choice, right? You can't fail. So just keep, uh, keep focused on the positive, keep moving ahead. And there's always going to be adversity, right? Never, Never let, um, you know, challenges stop you from uh, what you want to do. Keep, uh, keep your eye on the future. Love it. Well, thank you, Larry. It was such a pleasure. 
to hang out with you. Um, and hopefully I will, um, we'll see each other in real life sooner rather than later. <laughs> Not over Zoom. Exactly. It would be nice to have a hug. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.